Welcome to the Indestructible Wealth Podcast. This is the place where we help young entrepreneurs and professionals to make, keep, and grow wealth that you can enjoy now and for years to come. I'm your host, Jack Gibson, a serial entrepreneur, founder of multiple seven and eight figure businesses and wealth building strategist. Each week, I'm gonna share my tips, resources, and secrets to help you create a plan and build the life you've dreamed of. All right, guys, welcome back to Indestructible Wealth and excited to have a special guest on the line today. We're aligned in a lot of our thought processes and strategies about how to build wealth. So I think this will be great. Particularly, we're going to dive into money myths. So please help me welcome from the great state of Colorado. And yes, I am jealous of you living there. Stephanie Walter, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. So whereabouts in Colorado? Because I definitely, uh, I either want to end up there, or I want to end up in Arizona. So I I'm a Colorado native. I, I lived in Chicago for eight years, but then came back. I'm just west of Denver. So just right outside of the Denver metro area, right at the foot of the foothills, really. So. Okay. So you were in Chicago for how long? Eight years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I detected a little bit of a Chicago accent, so yeah. that does make sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I live an hour and a half from there, so we're very we come into Chicago quite a bit. So um, you talk a lot about money myths, and we're going to dive into your kind of background and story in a bit. But you have a book called Shattering Money Myths, which we'll also talk about how listeners can get a hold of that and get a copy. So what are your thoughts on, you know, like, what are all these money myths that people have that aren't really serving them? So let's start there and dive in. I think the first one is in their mindset. Most people come from a mindset of accumulation. So either they're accumulating money in their 401k and just kind of set it and forget it, really not interacting with their money in a way. When I started working with wealthy people, I saw that they use, they have a mindset of their money with util, it's called utilization. So their money is always working for them. Think of it as it really does need to be a mindset change to where they believe their money is an employee. And what are they, what is this money doing for them right now? And so that in itself changed the way that I looked at my money as well, because I was at, I wasn't investing in the stock market, but I had a lot of, I had rental properties yeah. and uh, they were barely cash flowing, you know, but my goal was, well, I'll just keep the money in there and, and wait the 30 years and, and retire with the income that they would pay. So that accumulation can take, you know, many many forms, but really, if you look at your money as you don't have any control over it, and you're just going to put it somewhere, and it's going to stay there for 30 years, your mindset is pretty much an accumulation. And every wealthy person I've known has a mindset of utilization. Okay, so more specifically, are you talking about like, we're, we're accumulating this big pile of money that we're then just going to draw down out of that as we retire versus I'm going to create multiple streams of income. Yes. Yep. The yeah. utilization is using the money here and now. And is it giving how much cash flow? What's the return um, right now to you? What are the benefits as far as money it's producing and actually tax 
tax questions come into play there. Like, is it helping me on my taxes? You know, the money needs to be working for them at any and all times. And yes, and in several places at the same time. So if I'm reading you right, you're in favor of buying assets that have both components of growth, appreciation in value, but also kick off some good cash flow at the same yes. time. I mean, cash flow, when my view changed to understand how important cash flow was, really should be the paramount decision when you're investing in things, is that with the cash flow allowed me to retire from my business. I sold my business in 2021. What business was that? I was an insurance agent, like a property and casualty insurance agent for 16 years. And so you build up a nice book yeah. of clients, then you're able to, to sell that off and mm -hmm. then take that money and put it to work in utilization. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, it is difficult to get your money to produce like high cash flow percentages, right? If you want both growth and cash flow at the same time, there's kind of a it's almost like a ha I look at it as like a happy medium. What are your thoughts on assets that have both components? I mean, it's not that easy to get them, right? But they are out there. Yeah. I mean, for me, my interest went into real estate. And so I do syndicated real estate deals, which are just, uh, they're large deals that get put together by a group and then people come in and invest as yep. truly passive investors. That's a hundred percent passive income right yep, there. hundred percent passive. <laughs> and that to me, uh, you know, think the market is changing, but um, since I got into this market in 2016, it's been real growth, definite growth and and cash flow uh, a typical investment is usually a 20 percent annualized return and then we hold the property for three to five years and then you get an eight percent oh i don't know six to eight percent cash flow every month sure. somewhere between that syndication. and that yeah syndication so, is my favorite investment by far at this particular moment yeah and you get the tax benefits and and things like that We'll dive back into that. We're going to circle back around to that. So, okay. So, the, so one money myth is accumulation. What's, what are some other ones? Um, I think the most interesting one that I realized from my wealthy investors was that they don't look, people tell you, oh, the rich got rich because they like to invest in very high risk assets and their investments and there's actually nothing that's further from the truth on that <laughs> right um wealthy people are extremely conservative they're extremely they mitigate their risk at all costs what a wealthy person is looking for is asymmetric growth so they want a a large return for a small amount of money and the risk is uh is neg negligible <laughs> <laughs> they they don't want they don't want to deal with a lot of risk at all. And so that surprised me because actually in my past life I had my series 6 and series 7 and when you sit down with a financial planner and they ask you what's your risk tolerance and somehow we've all got it in our heads that to invest in the stock market we have to 
you know, have a a higher risk tolerance to do better. And in the real investing world, that that is not the case with most wealthy people. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, one of the mottos, I think, is the number one motto of the wealthy, as far as I've come to know and study, is safety first. Mm -hmm. And I see so many young entrepreneurs that especially young entrepreneurs, younger, probably younger people in general. I mean, I was guilty of this when I was 22. I had 50 grand put it into all into tech stocks because they were booming in, oh, yeah. in 2000. The dot com bubble burst burst my portfolio really fast. <laughs> um, when you lose, you know, 25 grand of 50 grand when you're 22, that hurts yeah. really bad. So that but that painful lesson taught me from that on, you know, I would only do things that were extremely safe and really protect my capital. Do you see that like with the younger gen too that you work with that they tend to need to learn a lesson sometimes where they yes. they get way uh, too aggressive especially with that I, first 100k yeah. i think that's what they the young people that i interact with more i mentor you know people into doing they consult me with real estate and yes they're very aggressive going into real estate and we'll we'll see the repercussions of this probably in the next couple of years people that were so young they just thought this in this low interest rate would be forever and ever and uh they had no idea that you know rates will go up last year you know close to a 40-year record and they they tied their these these syndications into very short-term debt and uh floating debt potentially so you know at, at some point they're going to probably lose their buildings because they didn't have the foresight to, you know, secure the long-term debt in to their properties. But that's, yeah. But yeah, that, that's what where I see it is people just not, and that just comes from experience, you know, going through a few down markets and, and stuff like that. That's where you learn things like that. Yeah. What I <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with that. What I saw is that a lot of them would get very, very heavy into digital assets. And mm -hmm. I, look, I, I talk about digital assets on my show. I think they're great. They're an asymmetric play. You know, you, you put small amounts of money in to get, you know, 10x, 20x types returns or more. And they were putting all of their money into e-com stores, into, um, you know, altcoins, into meme coins tech stocks. I mean, they were really getting hyper aggressive and bust. Boom. Yeah. You know, I know people that they lost all the money that they had saved up in the last, mm. you know, in this last correct major correction. Yeah. So yeah, we, you and I, we want to help them to um, avoid that pain. It's not a pleasant experience. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> so, okay. So how did you get started in business where you said you started a you know, you're in insurance. Is that the first thing that you did? No, I, I came out of college and uh, just got a regular job, W-2 job. And I, you know, remember getting brought in after, you know, a few years and the boss is telling me I did a great job and I just bought a house and they said, you know, we think you're doing fantastic. We're going to give you a 2% raise. And I uh, went back to my dad who was um, alive at the time and said, dad, like they're telling me 2% raise. I mean, what's that going to look like? I mean, for the rest of my life, if I'm getting a 2% raise and my dad, who is an entrepreneur said, 
you know, you can continue on this, this path and work for the company. And you, you know, they put it out there of what you should be expecting, or you work on your own, create something of your own, and you are dependent on yourself with how well you'll do. And so I quit my job two weeks after that and started the started an insurance agency. And so then you did that for 16 years, you sold it out. And then why did you decide to get into financial coaching education? Well, I, um, I've always loved real estate. So I bought a lot of single family rentals when I was, a you know, an insurance agent in the Denver area. And then, um, in 2016, I was brought into a boot camp where they, uh, talked about how to buy commercial buildings and multifamily apartments. And, uh, that's when I first heard the concept of syndication, which is, you know, a group of people doing something more than anyone could do on their own. Mm. And I loved it. I was sold. Um, so I did my first syndication by myself in 2018 and realized that there are too many moving parts. So I wanted uh, to get a partner and got a partner in 2019. And we purchased together uh, 12 assets, about $300 million of assets under management right now. Wow. Um, and, and you run, do you run this indication yourself? I don't r- run it. My partners are more of the managing side of it. I am more of the money raising side. So I, so that's where I actually learned a lot when I started working with these, because people have to have a net worth of a million dollars to invest in our deals that that's yeah. called an accredited investor. Or they got to make over 200K right. or 300K yep. filing jointly. Yep. And uh, so uh, many times I, I'd be talking to people that had net worths well over that and looking at their financial statements and seeing what they were doing and just just started my journey of of seeing that, you know, what we were told, what I've been told my whole life on how to invest is, is not the right way. It's not the way that the wealthy people do it putting all your money into a 401k that you don't know, or you don't understand is probably the largest, you know, the saddest thing I see from people. And so now at this point, um, you know, I've, I've slowed down on my money raising and we're just going to wait and see how the market goes. But um, in the meantime, I wrote this book and really highlighted some areas that people need to look at you know, and I'm, it's my passion to talk to people about their money and money mindsets and doing things that taking, basically taking responsibility for your money. So you raised, do you raise pretty much by yourself the 300 million? Yes. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? That's an insane amount of money. <laughs> um, I mean, I've done three syndication raises and I've done like, I'm going to hit maybe 4 million. Yeah. Well, no, that's incredible. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is 30 million. That is 30 million of what I've raised because I raised 10%. Okay. So then the rest is debt. You Mm -hmm. you have bank debt on the rest. Yep. And so it's 10 to 15%. I think I, when I looked the other day, I'd raised about 40 million. So it's a lot of 
conversations with people. I, I go on a lot of podcasts. I, I built a pretty large database of people that trust me, uh, go to a lot of conferences, network with people. Um, most people really like the concept of syndication. So once they, we started small actually. And so we were able to kind of grow our base a bit organically of our investors because they were so happy with what we were doing each time we did another one, then they would have people to bring in, um, in the deal as well. So yeah, there's no magic bullet. It's, you got to do a lot of things at the same time. (laughs) Yes. Yes, for sure. So you're pretty aggressive, right? On the debt that you use. Um, what's your thoughts on, you know, utilizing 90% debt. Um, no, nothing wrong with that by any means. I mean, it gives you the ability to purchase uh, a lot more assets than you could otherwise. Do you feel comfortable with that amount of debt? Well, some of our properties have 20% and some of them um, have have 10%. Are these mostly multifamily? Yeah, multifamily. Okay. And, you know, I I feel like we've been very we're very conservative with what we buy. So we're very selective and we, we buy everything we purchase has been off market through relationships that we have with other people. Um, we buy from, from people that just are doing a poor job of running the properties. So when we, our goal is we need equity when we get into the deal. Mm-hmm. And so um, by so, buying yeah. below the market, true market value. Yep. But buying a loan to the market, we want to add value to our assets and cash flow pretty, pretty quickly. I, I mean, probably within six to 12 months, they'll have monthly cash flow coming out of the property. When you, so with all your single families that you started with, it's, you're playing real life monopoly, right? You, <laughs> you started with the four greenhouses. I mean, you bought more than that, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. And then let those grow, build equity and trade those in. Do you still own them or did you sell them off? I sold them all off in the last few years because again, you're, you're looking at your returns on your money. And I started investing in the syndications that we were doing. And Um, you realized pretty quickly that by doing bigger deals that you could have less management because you don't have all these single family houses spread out that you're trying to keep track of each one. Yeah. You're just keeping track of one bigger deal. Yes. Yeah. So isn't it like a better life? Yes. It's a thousand percent a better life. <laughs> but what do you recommend for somebody that's not accredited? Do you think they should start with single fam? I, yeah, I say, you know, get in, get in. If you can get a good deal on anything, even like a condo or I, I had a, an intern that worked for me this summer. And I was like, that is the single most important thing you can do is buy something because I don't think, and my, you just never regret buying something unless you have, like my dad said, you'll always make money on real estate unless you have a time frame or some deadline in which you have to, you know, sell the property. But I mean, it's, I think it's the most important thing you can do because then you get some equity, then you can get a line of credit, then you can move into doing something else and using your money more efficiently. Yes. I, I would say yes, by, by real estate for sure. So do you like real estate over stocks? 
Yeah, I do. I do just, I'm probably pretty biased because I grew up with an entrepreneur and I watched my dad buy rental properties and that made sense to me. I I did get my series six and series seven when I was a, an insurance agent. I went through the 2008 bump in the road. And, uh, that was, that was, I took that hard, um, because, you know, they don't, they're not really training us, you know, as most financial planners, I know people put them up on a pedestal, but, you know, we took a test, they gave us some basic training of, of what we, they wanted us to put people in as far as mutual funds. And, and there you go. And so there was this, large drop off and no one saw it coming. No one told us about it. No one, you know, I just felt very bad for people who had lost a lot of money in, in that. And of course, 2008. Yep. 2008. So shortly thereafter, I I got rid of my uh, series six and series seven, because I felt like I never, I didn't feel like I could help people as far as, you know, from losing money. Because there's just not that you can't see it <laughs> yeah. coming, you know, and and so I, you I feel like you have more control with real estate. You have yeah. more predictability yeah. in the returns that you can get. Mm-hmm. I, it's tangible to me. I can go out like last I, two weeks ago. I, I drove the whole state of Florida with my partners and we looked at our whole portfolio. You can go out, meet the residents, meet the people that are running the properties, see the renovations, see what we're getting differently in our rents. That to me, you know, it, it's like a business essentially. And I've, I feel more, more comfortable with that. So that's, that's what I think. So you're following the Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad, poor dad playbook, right? Build a cash flow producing business and then take that money and buy single family home properties or good cash flowing properties per se. And then, then we take the monopoly game over from yeah. there, sell those off when it makes sense, upgrade into the red hotel, AKA syndication. And, um, I just don't see, I mean, you just, that's a blueprint for wealth. Like you, like you're saying, like, if you hold real estate long enough, you have, plus you're getting the cash flow kicking off. So even if the market drops substantially, if you just hold the property, you're going to have positive cash flow coming off of in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no, I mean, I've gone over it. We, we actually started investing my partner and I straight through COVID and that was like, that was pretty scary because, you know, we weren't sure what was going to happen, but we had a, a retail center actually in Florida that we're going to be selling this year that we got off market and it'll be returning 40% annualized returns to our investors. It was just buying it at the right price at the, mm. you know, at the right time. But We've got, um, thankfully, Florida, they pretty much kept their economy open. So it just became really clear, though. I mean, it, it was fairly clear beforehand that you need to be, you need to know your market. You need to know, you know, is it a landlord friendly state? Is it not? You know, there, there's lots of things that we consider when we're investing demographics and, and stuff like that. And how multifamily performed through that 2007, 2008 
slump was uh, that multifamilies usually held their values pretty well because people were moving into, they were losing their houses and moving into apartments. So it's a, it's a pretty recession-proof investment. It's really difficult to find any other asset class or type of investment where you can hit safe, relatively safely. There's nothing that is good that has no risk profile, but to hit 40% annualized returns, where else are you going to do that, right? With the degree of safety that you can in a syndicated deal, like can't do it in stocks. We know that for sure. You can't do it in crypto. You can't do it in um, rental property. I mean, you can do well in rental property, I think in the teens, but Mm -hmm. in the 20s and 40s, that's, I mean, what do you see? You know, that is, that's a perfect example of, you know, buying something where the guy sold it to us. He, He wanted to get out of it. And I didn't know, I guess, what he, you know, what he was doing, but he sold it to us for about, you know, it was less than replacement cost on the building itself. So, so you couldn't even build it from scratch. You couldn't even build it for scratch. For the same price. He sold it to us for. So that That's one. That's what we call a deal. Yes, a deal. <laughs> a deal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so why are you so sour on 401ks? Um, I am, the more I learn about them, the more sour I get. Um, <laughs> I, I never, uh, I never, I had someone tell me not too long ago, they're like, you shouldn't really go so negative on 401ks because that kind of alienates, like, your audience or whatever. And I was like, you know, it's what I'm seeing. It's the truth. The 401k is, is something that just came out in the eighties. It wasn't meant to be everybody's end all be all as opposed to, you know, retirement. And we're supposed to save like 3% a year uh, for 20 years. And then we'll be able to retire a comfortable lifestyle that, that logically doesn't make any sense. Um, the numbers just don't really work out because the returns aren't strong enough annualized. And they always, they go back to, because I talked to many people and they're so like, they're like, I just keep putting this money in every year. It's what my financial planner tells me to do, but it never seems to go up or down and uh, it just kind of stays stagnant. But yet, I'm going to keep putting in the money because that's what they tell me to do. So I think it's just the main thing is it advocates the responsibility of the of the investor to just they don't they don't have any responsibility for their money. And I think that's the worst thing that's ever happened, because now you've got these big financial institutions that are making fees. I think 92 percent of the people out there don't think that they're paying fees on their 401ks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just, that's silliness. And um, to know the fees are the the largest, I would say eroder of, of their retirement to where, to which someone will tell me, well, compounding interest is the, you know, most amazing thing or whatever. I guess Albert Einstein said that. Come right back to that. And I say, well, what about the compounding fees? Yeah, right. <laughs> those are going working against your growth of your yeah. money. Where, where, do you, where do those fees coming from? Are you talking yeah. about like what type of fees? Are you talking mutual about like the funds, mutual fund fees? Yeah, the ones yeah. that, you know, 
not anything wrong with with Dave Ramsey. I think he handles a different type of investor. But, um, you know, to tell people to invest in mutual funds that on average have 3% expenses, um, many of those expenses are not. And they'll someone will look at their uh, prospectus and be like, no, no, mine says it's a 1%. And then I'll say, well, go back into the back of the prospectus and read down all the different fees and charges that are that are being taken out. You know, mutual funds are extremely expensive. If you're going to stay in the stock market, I think almost any person agrees that you should be in low, low cost index funds. But let's, yeah. And then let's not even get into the control aspect of it is that a lot of times you're investing in these mutual funds. You, those are hundreds or maybe even thousands of companies you know a thing about any of these companies? Do you know who's running the company? Do you know what their strategy? Do you know what they want to achieve? Are their values aligned with your values? You know, these are all things that I think people should know and take responsibility for. Um, but even a 1% difference in fees over a 20 year period is an enormous drag on a portfolio. Yes. And you're talking about a lot of them, you said 3%. So what is a fee on a low cost index fund? It's like what point? Point eight or maybe lower than that. Yeah. So you're talking about a two and a half percent drag difference. Mm -hmm. And most people would just say, oh, that's just such a small number. I used to think that, oh, that doesn't really make a difference. If like, if I'm in the right funds are going to outperform and outpace that fee, but yet nobody 85% of the fund managers can't beat the market. They can't beat the yep. index fund. That's right. Yep. That's, that's right. That's a, that's a really important point that the, the money managers that uh, you know, the majority of them cannot beat the index. So what are you paying them for? <laughs> <laughs> right. You're, you're overpaying for underperformance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I also think from a tax perspective that I'd personally think taxes are more likely to be higher by the time I go to retire. I'm 45, so what, 20 years with the amount of debt that the government is taking on, it just logically would seem that, and we nobody has a crystal ball, right? But it would seem that the Taxes are going to go up as we kind of progress here. We are at historical lows, so they really don't have anywhere to go but up. So if I'm going to retire at a higher tax bracket, I'd rather pay the piper right now, get it out of the way. Yeah. And that that's, yeah, I hadn't even gotten to to that part of it. But yes, the the tax, those future tax consequences, which are that you we are historically low tax rates do you have a plan does you know most people you know don't have any kind of tax plan they they just are told well we'll just you just delay it delay it delay it and then when you pull it out you'll be in a lower tax bracket well that not isn't necessarily the case you've lost a lot of your du- deductions when you retire and so that's a that's an unpleasant surprise to come into retirement and and not have the money that you thought you were going to have. Yeah, and especially if you're pro real estate and that's a big chunk of your portfolio, then if you have those inside of a retirement entity where, you know, like a solo or a self-directed type plan, 
you lose the depreciation advantage. Mm -hmm. That's a huge part of benefit of doing real estate. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. And speaking about taxes, you have a part in your book, um, Shattering Money Myths, that you say it's possible to set up a tax-free income in retirement. How is this done? This is done through a product that people kind of either have a strong reaction to one way or the other. It's life insurance. Oh, yeah. Because life insurance is a, actually, you need to think of it as the vehicle in which you can accomplish putting a great deal of money in having the money grow tax-free and then get distributed to you tax-free. Now that may or may not be a new concept for most people, but what is, I think, a new concept to most people that I talk to is premium financed insurance. And that is a concept in which a bank finances your insurance policy. So in a sense, this works very much like a real estate transaction though so it is all encompassed in a life insurance product. Oh, I like so, this. I have yeah. not heard of this. Tell me more. I would say 90. I was in the insurance for, field for 16 years. I'd never heard of it. It's a very specialized wealth building tool and it is yeah. extremely awesome. Okay. It sounds awesome. I, I want to <laughs> use OPM to fund my life insurance and not tie up my own cash. Yep, that's, that's it. sounds fantastic. That's, so the only thing Why is, have I not heard of this before? I've been, you know, I have indestructible wealth. I've been doing financial education and coaching for a long time. This is the first time I've heard of this concept. Well, it I think that it's becoming, you know, just kind of like even syndications hadn't been heard of. And yeah, that's you know, it's true. coming down the pike of, you know, just knowledge in the internet. But largely this strategy has been used by corporations and people that have $25 million of net worth or higher. They've recently started making these available for people that have a net worth of a million. And they're still there. It doesn't matter. They're incredibly uh, efficient strategy. So I'll make it really simple. So say the bank is you put down 25%, like you're buying a property or the, let's just see, keep the math easy. 20%, you're buying a million dollar life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you put a hundred thousand into the policy, the, uh, 20%, you mean 200 or did you said a hundred. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. To 20%. So you put 200 in. Okay. The bank has funded the rest of it, 800,000. So say that gives you a policy value of $10 million. Okay. Sure. So you have You're only. talking uh, death benefit yep. is 10 million. Yep. Okay. So you, uh, you've only put 200,000 into it. Okay. So the way that these policies work is that you, as the take advantage of the up market, but you have none of the down market. So what the insurance company does is they go out and buy options. So if the options don't perform, then you get a 0% return in your in the bank, okay? But let's say you get, it's a year where you have 7% returns, okay? You don't get that 7% applied to your 200,000 that you put in you get that 7%, which applies to the $10 million growth. So that's where we come up with double digit returns in this product, if you can qualify for it. So it uses the power of leverage. It uses the power of, um, you know, 
this the product that they they put this in is a universal life policy, which, like I said, takes advantage of the up markets, but none of the down. So last year, let's say it was an overall down market, you'd have a 0% return. So you wouldn't lose anything, but you wouldn't gain anything. But then you have another year like this year. I mean, we can we can look back even 10, you know, we can look back. I was just going over a product like this the other day. So so a 7% return actually ends up being quite a bit more than that. Because you're That's getting the 7% well. off the full million and not just the 200K in cash. Yep. So that's going to amplify your return. Enormous. Does it double it? Yep, pretty close. Yeah, you get double-digit returns, and yes, it, it it would double it. The cool value of this product, okay. So the thing is, I, I don't want to go too deep, but okay. So I'm you sure get, it gets can get very complicated, but yeah, no, the, you're doing great. This is good. Get the loan that's put it, you get the loan from the bank. Okay. And then in 10 years after you have the policy enforced, the cash value of this insurance policy pays the bank off. And then the policy keeps growing. And within, I think 15 to, oh, I don't even think it's 20 years. I think we can design some of these at 15 years. You get a significant tax-free income. I mean, it blows uh, we have it stacked against like putting money into the stock market as opposed to doing this. It's, it just blows it away because one, the money's growing tax-free. And when the money gets distributed to, to you, it's tax-free growth. But maybe income really, and and on top of it, it's a life insurance policy. So you're when you do die, you're, you're the people that you want to leave it to get a $10 million life policy. So it's a fantastic way also of dealing with the estate taxes, which are, you know, going to be going down from 12 million to 5 million. The when your estate used to be worth 12 million or more, then the estate tax will come into play. I think it's 2026 that goes down to 5 million. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a real effective strategy for taking care of, you know, your state, you know, if something were to happen to you. So it's a pretty Are, awesome product. How do the banks make their money? They're taking a cut of somewhere, right? What's their, they're putting this 800 grand in, they're expecting some type of return or they're going to take out, you know, some type of money out of the death benefit to, for their Kind of yep, they they take out of the cash value and it ends up being uh i don't know it, it go it goes up and down so i think it's like maybe five percent is what they're wanting and it's a lower amount because it's it's a very safe guaranteed loan for as far as they're concerned because the person that takes out the loan doesn't ever have to pay them back that it'll be paid within this this life insurance policy. So it's just a fantastic way to leverage the bank's money to help you do your estate and retirement planning. So do you need to have a million in assets outside of your home to be able to qualify for this? Or is it also based on your income? No, you need a you need a million dollars net worth for, to be able to qualify for this. Yes. Okay. So you guys are listening. You're like, oh man, it sounded so good. You had me at hello and now I can't do it. 
Put well, this in no, the no, back no. pocket. There, there are, there's actually, we do step up programs. Uh, I call them step up programs because there's still very efficient ways to set these life insurance policies up that will um, build the wealth tax-free and things like that. And just start when you're younger. I mean, I ran one of these for much young, usually our average age of a person is probably 50 that, that takes one of these out. But um, because that usually takes them that long to get that kind of net worth. Sure. But like if you're 35 or something, you could get something like this going. It's not you're not leveraging the bank. You'd be putting your own money into it, but you'd be doing that as opposed to putting your money into your 401k. It would still be set. The policy would still be set to uh, get that those double digit growth on um, the way that we engineer this product to be. And then when you do have that million dollars of net worth, probably in 10 years, we could roll it over into that product and they'd be very ahead of the game. So just because you don't qualify for it now doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk to, to me. Yeah, okay. So as far as the money coming tax-free at retirement, is that from borrowing against the cash value or are you actually taking the dividends and you're starting to pull money out of the policy and it's somehow tax-free in this type of policy correct it's it's through you know the sneaky way that you know you're taking a loan again yeah. the policy so that's the way that that they get around that but that tax-free income is very significant because one, you're leveraging. Just think if you had a bank that was contributing to your 401k, you know, in some of these, if your net worth is high enough, it can be a three to one ratio that they're contributing. So it can be very impactful. I want to clear this up for the audience before I lose them, because they're probably, if they haven't listened to too many of my shows about life insurance before, I've only had a handful. Um, they're going to get tripped up with this concept of borrowing against your life insurance policy, right? It's yeah. like, what? How does that work? I know it took took me a while to get my my mind wrapped around it, but essentially, um, for for you guys listening, if your policy grows in value and it it takes a few years for your cash value to exceed the amount that you've actually funded with your own money into the policy, usually this happens a lot of policies year five to year seven somewhere in there. So once that cash value exceeds what you put in, in other words, it go, exceeds the cost of the insurance that you had to uh, kind of drags your policy in the first few years. But once you cross that threshold, you're in positive, positive territory, meaning your, your insurance policy has started to create some positive returns. And at that point, you could take that money out. You have that option, of course, and you would then pay taxes on that because you're you're taking income so the government's going to tax you anytime you have income all right but what you could do is go to your life insurance company and say hey i want to i want a loan i want to borrow against the value of my policy it's like okay they'll do it because they have your policy as collateral it's the same thing if you were to get a borrow against your heloc i mean it's not exactly the same but it's a similar concept is you borrow against the value of your property when you get a heloc a home equity line of credit and your bank is willing to do that because they know that your money is collateralized against the uh, the property that you know that that you that you own. So same, very similar concept. And this 
it trips a lot of people up but if you can guys can get this this get this concept it's critical to enjoying substantially higher returns without a tax drag and and stephanie thinking about you know you start to hit you know your your prime earning years you're hitting your 50s your 60s right you're usually making the most money uh, of your life not always but a lot of times yeah. Well, your tax liability is that much higher. You could be up in the, what is the max right now? 36%. I thought it was, we were getting close up to 38 or 30. 38. Yeah. So you're, and then on top of that is uh, state tax. So mm -hmm. you could be getting taxed almost 50% of your, of your income. So think about that. If you're getting taxed almost 50% and like, likely, you know, you got to really make a lot of money and not have very many deductions to get taxed that high. But just for easy math, if you're taxed 50%, you're doubling your, your return if mm -hmm. you're not paying taxes on that money. Yeah, it's, it's substantial. Like I said, even if you can't take advantage of the leverage aspect of the premium financed insurance, life insurance, uh, and the way that we structure them you know, for building wealth are extremely efficient. And I mean, just, you know, it just stinks, you know, that a lot of people don't know about this and just, you know, uh, stay in the system that we're given. And there are, you know, there's a lot of scary things coming up in the future. And I think having a tax-free income is, you know, where most people want to be. <laughs> that's yeah. an understatement, but that's yeah. fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit more about your book, Shattering Money Myths. Um, I wrote it because, uh, I got, I was asked on a lot of different podcasts and they were asking me about my favorite books and, you know, my favorite books are, you know, kind of a compilation of a lot of different books. And I thought, you know, that a lot of people have, have not heard of these myths about the 401ks, about the fees that are in your, your IRAs, even if they don't take advantage of these more elevated concepts of the life insurance, even annuities can be really amazing products. I just want them to open their eyes that there's something real estate, that there are other ways in which they can really engineer and to design their own wealth. And um, I just want to empower people. That's really always been my kind of what I love to do. I like to bring the new investor into the syndication rather than, I mean, I, I like the old, old rich investors too, but um, the new one that's like, oh my gosh, I never knew this could happen, you know, and them being so happy. And so, yeah, I, I like to empower people. And that's why I wrote this book, because I think by reading this book, it's fairly short. It's like 138 pages that you'll know more than your financial planner, for sure. <laughs> that is fantastic. Stephanie, what's the one question that as we wrap up here that I should have asked you, but I didn't? Was there anything we haven't covered yet? We've covered a lot of ground here, but I have a feeling there's something else, another nugget you've got buried there that we got to uncover oh man i you know i think the most important thing that i would say is the tax component of your future income be sure that you have a plan of of what that looks like and don't just leave it to the financial planner to be like well 
you know, you're going to be in a lower tax bracket, try to figure out what that will look like. And even if, like you said, the the tax rates are going to go up 1% or be even 1% higher, it probably doesn't make sense for you to stay in what you're doing right now. You really need to get a tax strategy in place so that you can enjoy your retirement, you know? That's... <laughs> Love it. So how do people follow you, get a hold of you, get your book? Um, I have my book on my website. It's uh, www.erbewealth.com. And um, I'm offering it, you know, to anyone that comes to my website, I'll send you a free copy or you can download it. I'll be doing that. And I don't know when this comes out, but I'll be doing it through the summertime. And then you can always contact me on um, my website as well. I know lots of people like to have a small chat with me and I love to do. Fantastic. We'll put your all your links and your website in the show notes. So if anybody's listening in their car, they forget the website, you guys can go right to myindestructiblewealth.com and um, pull that off the, this particular episode. Well, this is fantastic. I, I love what you're up to. Thank you so much. Sharing a totally new concept that, I mean, as soon as you said it, like within 30 seconds, I'm like, I got to do that. That is, <laughs> that is awesome. So yeah. I, uh, awesome. I really like, uh, I like learning and, and learning from very successful people like you. So congrats on all your success. Thanks for everything that you're sharing and doing to educate people about alternative ways than uh, the normal stock market deal. And uh, I know everybody's empowered walking away from this episode. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's a wrap. I'll see you on the next episode. Make sure to share the episode. Give me a five-star review and go and grab Stephanie's book, Shattering Money Miss. Here we go. That's a wrap for this episode on the Indestructible Wealth Podcast. If you'd like to dive deeper into your own wealth building strategy, check us out at myindestructiblewealth.com and follow along on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and yes, even TikTok. Send me your questions and your financial challenges and I promise I'll respond. Also, I'll think you're really awesome if you'll share and leave me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. Until next time, remember our mission here is to help you make, keep, and grow wealth you can enjoy now and for years to come.